Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast, and welcome to our year-end review. Based on listener requests, we're releasing each of our eight year-end interviews as what we call an extrasode, 20 to 25-minute piece covering a single topic. This extrasode is with Mazen Nouradin, who will discuss improved use of non-invasive testing techniques in clinical trial and diagnosis and in patient management. Questioners include Louise Campbell, Stephen Harrison, and me, and we begin. So, this discussion is with our good friend Mazen Nouradin, who joined us first at AASLD and has worked extensively in a variety of areas and was first mentioned repeatedly on this podcast by Donna Cryer when talking about the Beyond the Biopsy tour that the two of them did together in September. And Stephen, why don't you take maybe a minute and just tee up this conversation for us? Yeah, absolutely, Roger. Thank you. So amazing. Great to have you on with us today. And, and thanks for all your seminal work that you've done in the field, particularly in the past year in the era of COVID, where you, uh, you've you come online with a very elegant publication looking at screening of NAFL diabetic patients. And then some of the seminal work you've done looking at non-invasive testing strategies, combinations of both wet and imaging biomarkers. Great to have you on with us today. Love to hear your insights and comments as to where you believe the field has come in 2020, where we're looking forward to in 2021 relative to those particular areas of interest. Uh, Stephen, Roger, and Luis, it's a privilege to be here again today. It's a privilege to get a compliment from you, Stephen. Uh, you have led the field nicely and uh, with many therapeutic drugs and other other areas in the field. So I guess uh, compared to also when, when you talked about the FDA endpoints, I want to look or focus on real-life reality, what we're going to do in the future for these patients. And many things happen in this 2020. Other than the coronavirus, of course, uh, I think we have very good data now giving us some comfort that we don't have to stick our patient right and left at least for monitoring so let me break it into three pockets and the screening will be uh, one of these pockets so pocket number one is identifying the patient that are at risk and since 2015 until now we have clear data that showing patients with f2 stage 2 fibrosis and higher are the highest risk for morbidity and mortality. So in this year, and I'll go to them in a second, a lot of data came out showing confidence that we can tell who's F2 and higher using non-invasive testing. The second interesting pocket nowadays is the concept of NASH and foreign higher and F2 and higher, which as you know, this is what we use in, in clinical trials based on liver biopsy to enter clinical trials. But now we have non-invasive testing that can accurately detect those. We'll go those in a second. And the last one, which is I think very important, the non-invasive testing role in monitoring therapy responsiveness. And this is very promising because, as I said, serial biopsy is not a great option for such a prevalent disease. So let me go back to pocket one. 
And I'm glad that a lot of people identify uh, the F2 and higher as a cutoff because it gave us kind of sense of the clinical importance and who should we who should we looking for. So now we have a, a large pocket po- uh, of options: transcendental histography, MRI histography, serum-based testing such as Fib4, NAPL, fibrosis score. And what we saw in 2020, combining these biomarkers to reach high area under the curve, specificity, sensitivity, and positive predictive value. So as you mentioned earlier, Stephen, we, we, we need to, to screen the high-risk population. And we relied on that work, the F2 data and higher for com- comorbidity and mortality, and that we have to identify these patients. And then we relied on non-invasive testing to perform a cost-effective analysis. And that cost-effective analysis, what we basically said, compared to the SLD guidelines in the past that they said there's no cost-effective analysis to show screening is effective, we said, okay, this this guidelines relied on a very nice study by Kathleen Corey, but we updated it since then because since her study, the F2 story was not quite well known and non-invasive testing were not as used. So we said, okay, we'll we'll use the transient histography to detect F2 patient and higher. And of course, that was cost-effective because of the disease prevalence. We looked at the diabetics that they are at highest risk, so they turned to be cost-effective. And I hope that will be included in the ASLD guidelines. We also compared to the biopsy in in this study, and the biopsy did not be, did not come out cost-effective as everyone would expect. So. It doesn't just have to be transcendental histography. It can be any non-invasive biomarker to look for F2 and higher that it's around the same price. So I hope that will be included in the next ASLD guidelines, not as a publication, but rather just a recommendation to help our patients out there. And as you know, a lot of them are hiding in endoclinic and PCP clinics, and they get in trouble without them even knowing at one point. The second pocket, as I mentioned, is also encouraging and very promising is the NASH with NASH4 and higher and F2 and higher. And as you know, FDA requires a biopsy in phase three studies to enter these patients' clinical trials. So when they get approved, we want to look for something equivalent uh, non-invasively. And a lot of things have been studied uh, right now. So, Stephen, you have involved in two of the major works that have been published between 2019 and 2020, which is the FAST score by the transient lustography machine, which is, uh, as you know, it's a steatosis, fibrosis, and AST, and the NIS4. It's a serum biomarker that includes multiple components that also detect the same thing. We also have done similar work uh, using MRI that you and I are working on and uh, there are others to come. The last pocket that I want to mention is response to therapy, and I'm not going to take too long, but we have seen a very promising data showing that transient lithography, FIP4, we, we had ALT before, but now a lot of other biomarkers such as the CT1, or C3, Elf, many others are going the right direction with the therapy, as well as some data on biopsy, but we need more of that field. And I want to add one last thing that the prediction to progression to sources, there were some papers that are evolving. You and I talked about Elena Allen's paper showing that increase on stiffness in MRE 
correlates with decompensation. She had a very nice longitudinal data for many years. We had a smaller cohort that also uh, showed the same thing, not as detailed as her cohort, but also emphasizing on the same thing that increased stiffness tells you that you this patient probably going to decompensate based on MRE. And that was shown before on FibroScan. And we identified cutoff on MRE, which is 6.48 that correlates with decompensation. I think to me, this year is a year of hope for patients. I'm sure others will talk about therapies and there were some promising therapies. Uh, so to me, the glass full and with the non-invasive testing and future use of those non-invasive testing, I think we have a good year, not a bad year for NASH compared to the year we had bad overall with the COVID-19. So that's how I see this year and I'm always optimistic. So I hope that you guys have the same view on the NIT. Yeah, I get asked all the time, is your glass half full or half empty? My glass is always half full and your contributions to the field have been very, very important during this year. I just wanted to follow up with two comments. Number one, your paper on screening of diabetes for fatty liver. I believe, just a point of clarification, that one of the things you added into your model that Kathleen Corey did not have was uh, liver cancer or liver transplant. I can't remember which one it was. If you could clarify that. The other question or comment more, actually, it's a question. I know Naeem Al-Khori has mentioned this before, and I thought it was really an interesting comment, and I want to get your take on it. And that is, on the context of use of measuring therapeutic efficacy for metabolic drugs, we look at MRI PDFF and we see data this past year reflecting that actually the higher you go in relative liver fat content reduction, the better the odds of having NASH resolution and even fibrosis improvement as outlined in the NGM trial and with uh, resmeterone. Do you see MR elastography potentially filling that role for cirrhotics, using that as a non-invasive tool for a marker of therapeutic efficacy? Smart and tough question, Stephen. Let me take the first one. It's an easy one because I did the study. So I think the difference between our paper and Dr. Corey's paper, we took advantage of three things. Phytocellular carcinoma, as you mentioned, but also we took advantage of the recent knowledge that she didn't know back then, which is we want to look for F2 and higher patients. In her initial paper, again, knowledge was not known about the F2s. She looked at NASH using biopsy. We said, no, let's look for F2 using non-invasive testing. And we added the hepatocellular carcinoma. A lot of data came from the Berlinossi on disease transition and prevalence and all this. So I do thank him so much for publishing so much data that we relied on it heavily and, and that cost effectiveness. For question number two, let me start with this. I think it's good to say, I don't know. So as you know, that in cirrhotics, you have two types of patients and multiple pockets. There are patients still with activity, steatohepatitis. And at certain degree, as you know, steatosis and inflammation decrease. You see that in cirrhotics, but you see it also and the further you go, meaning the, the worse the disease, the steatohepatitis starts disappearing, which eventually goes to what we call the cryptogenic cirrhosis. And there was a paper by Zuberi Nasi in 2019, I think Jay Hab came from the Synthesumab data showed that these people, that they are quote-unquote cryptogenic, they have a higher collagen content, probably thicker septa and all this, and they decompensate worse. So to answer your question directly, I don't suspect that 
MRI PDFF will be helpful in this group. Rather, it will be helpful on those that will have hepatitis activity that you can reverse it and you can show that on MRI PDFF or CT1. And I think with time, MRI will, PDFF will show us more data and in terms of it's able to predict reversing cirrhosis. I think that will be based on its improvement of steatohepatitis. So that's how I break it. Cirrhotic, cryptogenic, or no activity, MRI PDFF will play less a role versus those with the steatohepatitis activity, MRI PDFF will play a role. I don't want to hijack the conversation completely. I know Roger, Louise may have some quick comments or questions. Just to clarify, the work that Alina and you have done in showing that MRE can predict outcomes, I'm just thinking down the road in 2021 and beyond, if we're able to show regression of stiffness on MR elastography in a clinical trial, would do you think that tool could be used, MR elastography, to show a reduction in outcomes with a therapeutic modality? And as a result, that would become the endpoint that we could use with the FDA in a cirrhotic trial. The answer is, this is very thoughtful, and I think the answer is yes. We're able to predict this side of the freeway, which is the progression. We need to go the other side of the freeway, which is predicting regression with MRE. And as you know, that this has been slightly difficult with a lot of non-invasive uh, involving trials. And I don't think it's because MRE is not showing that. I think this is an area of research needs to be tapped. And I think there should be some modifications in the way the MRE is read in regression. We can talk about this and it's a matter of debate, but I think it will eventually, once we find the right way to read MRE regression. We've seen it in transient lithography more than 25%. So the story there has been nice and needs to be published. Uh, but I think MRE has a lot of potential there. We just have to formulate it well. Thank you. Thank you. You can tell which one of us lives in Los Angeles by who made the freeway reference as a way of describing where we're going here. I doubt that Louise or I or Eva Steven would have gone to a freeway reference. But thank you for that. Louise, you have a question? Um, yeah, I have to... It'll be interesting to see. I think everybody knows F2 and above, but Donna was referring in a couple of episodes that the, the FDA and that have accepted new ICD codes for lower than F2 fibrosis and whether or not we've got any markers that would be sufficient other than biopsy to pick up the lower grades of NAFLD and NASH fibrosis, um, whether NIS4, Fibroscan um, or any of those are sort of sufficient to be able to detect those patients. But the other thing that always strikes me is that we look at cost-effective analysis in screening populations who've already developed disease. And that's a very expensive way to start a cost-effective analysis. And I know this is the Litmus Project and they're looking through Europe of scanning 30,000 patients throughout Europe with Fibroscan in primary care. But does any cost-effective analysis look at the cost of development of the disease before you even start to screen? Because liver disease we know, as, and fatty liver disease particularly, has become a colossal global population. We now have 7 out of 10 NCDs 
um, as the biggest causes of death worldwide. And it's not a surprise. A lot of them are interlinked with fatty liver disease. So by purely waiting to screen for fatty liver disease, once diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, high cholesterol is developed, is not ever going to be cost effective. Surely the cost effectivity is screening for the disease to prevent both the fatty liver disease and the associated diseases. Prevention is cost effective. But if we always tail end it, we are never going to produce much evidence. So it was absolutely fantastic startling that you were able to produce that evidence in those type 2 diabetics over the age of 55, was it? It was a 55 from previous models, but we projected it if we got, go down to 40, would it cost effective? And it was. So the recommendation was to screen for 40 and higher. But would it be cost effective to have prevented the diabetes in the first place by screening earlier to... So that that, that would be my argument. And I come from a liver well-being perspective. If you keep the liver healthy, you develop less of these diseases. And looking earlier changes people's behavior a little bit better than waiting late. Excellent point. Very well taken. And... The question is, why wait until NASH and it's F2 and higher, uh, rather detecting it even with the early stage, even before NASH or NASH and F0 and, and try to reverse it? As you know, like a lot of cost-effective analysis data relies on cost, uh, cost of transplant, cost of HTC, you know, which patient population, if you spend that money, it will be, you know, most helpful. So I think that's what we did. I was happy that it's a first step. I do agree with you that looking for instance in NASH F0, F1 in a more cost-effective way will be a better, like a excellent way to go so we can start earlier. I can tell you that we considered cardiovascular mortalities, though we need more data there. So we consider both liver-related and cardiovascular. But one way to do it is to go for NASH and F0, F1 as the next step and less invasive te- or less, less expensive tests and see if they will be cost effective. So I do agree with you the earlier the start, or, or, or you can just argue that ob- obesity, you know, you, you just start from there. No one should be obese, but that's a different story for a different day. But yeah, I do agree with you, Louise. Yes, obesity, lean, um, unless we find the fatty liver throughout the populations, which is difficult to do, as we know, in purely blood tests. I think a lot of the evidence this year about non-invasive tests moving beyond biopsy can provide us with, and particularly people and individuals, the last thing they want to do is undergo a biopsy. It's the biggest ability to make somebody lose weight over three months in a hospital I've ever seen. Well, if you don't improve your fibre scan and your CAP score, Dr. X is going to stick a needle through your liver. It changes and it motivates really well. (laughs) And if you could do that every three months, um, arguably, we wouldn't be sitting here with um, massive pediatric and um, childhood and but <laughs> and that growing problem. But um, I would rather go on a run three times a day than doing the liver biopsy every three months or six. For some of them, it's as simple as dropping sugar drinks. It makes such a difference, as you know. Um, but no, it's an entertaining conversation. So back up. One question, and it goes back to the issue of elastography and PDFF. That when you do, I'm assuming when you do the cost effectiveness of screening, that part of the equation is benefit, part of the equation is cost, and that the cost of elastography is so much lower than the cost of PDFF if you have to use an MRI to do it, that that becomes a factor in estimating the value of the two different results. Is Am I guessing right or am I guessing wrong on that? You know, I I don't remember the exact price, but this is a point that I dealt with it earlier in my career. 
2013 paper, I was a fellow with Rohit Lomba, who was a junior faculty, I was a fellow, and we wrote this hepatology paper on using PDFF as a primary outcome, as one of the outcomes in, in the mass clinical trials. And as you know, Rohit did million papers on, in this field. But one of the earliest pushbacks and encouragement we had is the price of MRI. Institutions push for the highest price. But if you really look at Medicare price, both of them, now MRE has a new CPT code. I don't remember the exact quoting, uh, but both of them are three and 500, especially if you get uh, limited MRI abdomen. So they are closed on price, but they are being sold as expensive. Now, would they be effective for screening with the 3 and 500? I don't think so because the disease is so prevalent. But would, you, would they be cost-saving in monitoring the disease uh, compared to biopsy or even diagnosis? We're not talking of screening now. I think so. So the follow-up thought, right, is that in the next year, three years, five years, certainly, we will start to see the advent of small technology that is capable of measuring both at reasonably strong, robust levels of, of, of reliability. And I'm thinking that that flips the whole equation of when do you screen and what do you screen for and how robustly do we start to collect PDFF data as a pivotal endpoint because all of a sudden the economics and the convenience of doing it change dramatically. That's just my hunch. But does that make sense? I agree. And you can screen with something, let's say tip four. I'm just telling it. Or transcendentography as we publish. And then once they get to the hepatologist office, they can start with PDFF, hopefully with reasonable price if, you know, we all push for it and follow up with it on a long term. Now we can monitor treatment response with it. Can you do that with MRE? And more and more data will come. So that's how I see it. Can I just ask a question on that? With COVID having delayed the assessment of all patients coming through to specialists, is this now an opportunity to, in the real world, move to more non-invasive screening to get those lists down in proper environments and then, as you were suggesting, use MRE and PDFF fraction and biopsy only when needed? Because we have waiting lists for fibre scan in trusts and hospitals here that are now in excess of 12 months. So during those lists, there are people with undiagnosed cancers. There are um, obviously people with pre-cirrhotic who will develop cirrhosis, people with cirrhosis who will decompensate, who may not get assessed. So is COVID an opportunity for healthcare now to start looking at innovative technologies to start and using FIP4 a bit more and the serial tests that came out so well at um, Digital Arsold? You know, Louis, I, while you were talking, like you, you, you were proposing these great thoughts, I was thinking about 2030 and how the world looked different from that standpoint. We were forced to change things. I'm on video all day talking to patients. We're sending phlebotomy to their houses. Either biopsy or imaging tests such as MRE, you still have to come to facility. The reason why I'm saying is 2030 is like, I wonder if it's going to be all video. I still miss the handshake with the patients, still prefer it. But video, blood tests at home, and a machine that will go to their home and test them. Or we can be prepared for that during hard times. Hopefully, we're not going to have that again. But um, great thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think we have been very innovative during this time. And your your thought is provocative. And I think having home testing with imaging and blood tests can be part of the future. This has been a fantastic half hour. Thank you so much for joining us, Louise, Stephen. And um, we'll be spending more time with you, I hope, in 2021 as you come on and we talk about more provocative thoughts and ideas. 
I know, and I'm getting my vaccine this month. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, so, so, some of us are jealous. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. This ends our extrasode with Mazinur and Ian. If you find this extrasode concept valuable, please let us know. And with that, enjoy your vacation and stay safe. See you in 2021 on the podcast.